Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Wednesday, May the 4th, 2022. It is currently 7.19 p.m. Central Time. And no, I'm not coming to you live from the empty sanctuary of Victory Baptist Church. No, I'm not coming to you live with people in the sanctuary for our Wednesday evening service. I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas, in a room all by myself. So everything is not as it should be tonight. But when when circumstances go wrong, we still try to make the best of it. And so the best I can do is turn on this microphone and try to offer you something this evening. I've already done a number of other live broadcasts today, but those were more just kind of topical, dealing with different things going on within Christianity. Hopefully they were beneficial or helpful. Uh, but tonight I want to try to in some ways advance the Bible study exercise that we're currently working on. The Bible study exercise, for those who participate in the Bible study exercises, we've been working on Matthew 24 now for weeks. And we've got a couple of weeks to go still working on Matthew chapter 24. So the goal tonight was to be standing behind the pulpit, Victory Baptist Church. That was the goal. That's where I was supposed to be standing. And I was going to have this book in my hand. And we were going to be working on Matthew chapter 24, and let me just explain what we've been doing, all right? Matthew chapter 24, I've got, I'm not going to use this Bible, Um, I'm going to use a different one here. Uh, Matthew chapter 24, we've been working on it. I'm just going to do this, I'm just going to do a kind of a quick review to kind of explain what, what we've been doing and what we are supposed to be doing right now, but it's not going to happen. We're going to take a slight detour, but I hope it's going to be related. It's going to be related. It will all make sense here in a minute. All right. Matthew chapter 24. This is the Olivet Discourse. As we know that Matthew 24, if you read the chapter and pay attention to the beginning, which sets up the context, Jesus walks out of the temple. His disciples come and say, hey, look at all of these buildings. And Jesus says, yeah, look at them. They're all going to come down. They're all going to be destroyed. And the disciples are like, wait, when, where, how, who? Like They start asking questions. And Jesus is like, here, here are the signs to let you know when it's going to occur. Clearly, The question is about the destruction of that temple. We know exactly when it was destroyed, 70 AD. We know Titus was involved in the destruction of the temple. We We know all of this. We know exactly what happened. So when you look at these signs, it would make sense just from a normal reading the, the normal way of reading, the normal way of interpreting something you're you reading, that these signs are giving them the signs that, hey, be looking for these signs because when you see them, you know the destruction of the temple is coming. When you see these signs, you better pay attention because the temple is going to be destroyed. That That's clearly what the chapter is re- referring to and what it is about. There's There's... I mean, I, I don't know how you read it and just ignore that. But so many people look at this and go, no, 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 no. Yes, it may have something to do with 70 AD, maybe 70. And, and yes, 70 AD actually occurred. But what really is going on here is whatever it, whatever it had to do with 70 AD, that's not my concern because these are actually giving us signs for the second coming of Christ. So they look at it from a, a, a very futuristic perspective. But others are like, what are you doing? All of Matthew 24, it was fulfilled 
before 70 AD and at 70 AD, and that would be the preterist view. So you have a futuristic view, the preterist view, or you could call it the historical view and the futuristic view. Some will be try to be in between, but if you're in between, well, where is the stuff that relates to the past and where is the stuff that relates to the future? How do you draw the distinction between the two? And it just leads to questions and questions and questions. And our study, we were pretty, I think, pretty dogmatic that Matthew 24 verses 4 all the way to, let's see here, all the way to verse 20, I think we can be pretty dogmatic that it was fulfilled leading up to 70 AD and 70 AD. The big, the last question we really worked on was verse 15, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. We're, we're, I think we came pretty close to being, I think I can be pretty dogmatic. That was fulfilled in 70 AD. And we, we looked at Josephus and other historical facts to, to, to demonstrate that. You can go back and listen to the last episode in the Bible study exercise series uh, to, to hear that. Then when you, after you read that, verse 16, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains, which would make perfect sense. Hey, when you see, when you start seeing this happening, you want to get out as soon as possible. So there's this warning, flee, 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 don't look back, don't look back, don't go back, get out, get out, get out. And so tonight, what we were going to do is I was going to stand behind the pulpit, again, using this book that I have right here that offers a preterist perspective, right? A preterist perspective. We were going to look at the preterist perspective. I'm knocking everything off the table. We were going to look at it from a preterist perspective, and we were going to look at this verse, verse 21. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. Well, when you look at verse 21, (laughs) I don't know about you, I have a hard time saying that was fulfilled in 70 AD for numerous reasons, right? Because first of all, for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world. Now, how does 70 AD fulfill that? It's going to be the tribulation like has never been seen since the beginning of the world. Well, I can go back to, I don't know, Genesis. I think flooding the entire world was probably worse than 70 AD, Right? I mean, maybe, possibly. I mean, I think, I think that's, I think that's some pretty bad stuff right there. Yes. Oh, by the way, the temple had been destroyed previously and people had been taken off into captivity. So I, I don't know how 70 AD, I know it was bad. I know, I think Josephus has what up to a million. I'd have to, I don't have the the reference in front of me. I think Josephus has, I think about a million people being killed in 70 AD. Some people question the historical accuracy of that, but okay. Um, But even that, so, but so since the beginning of the world, no, no, nor shall, no, nor ever shall be. Now, okay. I can look to the past and see things that at least are almost as equal as bad, if not worse than 70 AD. And you're telling me, that 70 AD is going to be the worst that the world would ever see? Well, I could just look through history after 70 AD. I think World War II was pretty bad. I think World War I was pretty bad. So that's where I have a hard time going. Wait, 
that was fulfilled in 70 AD. That's where I'm thinking, I don't know. Now I've got tonight, we were going to, I was going to look at some commentaries. I was going to look at this book and we were going to see what they do with this, how they answer this. And we'll, we'll get to that probably Sunday night. But since I'm not in front of people, because these kinds of conversations, I like to have actually in front of people because I can, I can be asking questions and like, so what, in your mind, what would be required for this to be fulfilled? I love getting people to commit to that and then saying, well, does this answer it? But well, things did not work out the way we had planned. So here's what we're going to do earlier today. I think it was today. I can't remember. Today was a podcast day. I was spending a lot of day, a lot of the day listening to podcasts, one podcast after another. And I think someone mentioned a podcast called Theocast. I think they mentioned it today. Maybe they mentioned it yesterday. But at some point, I opened up my podcast app and looked at Theocast. And I'm like, okay, that this is a podcast that we probably need to do a Christian podcast spotlight episode on. Um, uh, but I was looking, and then as I started looking down the page, on our, or in my podcast app, scrolling down, I saw that they did an episode, and I don't have the date for the episode in front of me, but it was called Left Behind, A Conversation on Eschatology. And I was like, ooh, let's use that. And, and I, at some point, I was going to do a podcast episode about it, but then I'm like, well, now that Wednesday got all messed up, Let's let's use this time, which I would be standing behind the pul- pulpit typically doing what we were supposed to be doing on Matthew 24. Let's just open it up to a broader discussion about eschatology, and we'll utilize at least some of the Theocast podcast, see what they have to say, and then we'll just we'll just let this kind of be a free-for-all open discussion, and we'll see what happens. If you're using the Spreaker app, by all means, questions, thoughts, comments. You can also email me and I'll check this before I'm done with the broadcast, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. I will look at your questions and try to answer them as well. Now, this is a 41-minute podcast episode that we're going to be working on reviewing and analyzing. Clearly, we're not going to make it all the way through it. So I don't think I'll probably come back and do a part two, but I want us to just see where they go with the discussion about eschatology. I don't know their their view on eschatology. I don't know which eschatological system they hold to, so that makes it even more fun. I have a feeling, um, I have a feeling, and I, I think I called it Theocast. It would be Theocast, right? I think that would be the correct way of saying it. Just in the last broadcast, the Theo Conference, I think I called it, kept calling it Theo Conference. I think it's Theo Conference. So um, for some weird reason, I'm having issues with that word tonight. But I think it's the Theocast. I'm pretty sure I could be wrong. I, I'm going to guess maybe they come from a Reformed perspective. I could be wrong. I bet you that that's my guess. So if they come from a Reformed perspective, their eschatology, could, could it be amillennial? I'm assuming. We'll, we'll see. But eschatology is the study of end times. There's, of course, I know, I know this is going to come a shock to everyone. Oh, there's no agreement. 
in the body of Christ about eschatology. Oh, yeah, there's no agreement in the body of Christ about soteriology. Oh, there, yes, there's no agreement in the body of Christ about theology. There, there's not agreement on anything, which is maddening and frustrating. But the lack of agreement within Christianity and the fact that no one can agree should never stop us from pursuing truth to the best of our ability. But we're going to listen and we're just going to kind of see where they go. Now, remember when I do my, uh, my, my review audio, I always have to say this for new people listening. I have no idea what's getting ready to happen. I don't like to listen to it first. The reason why, because I feel like then I would just be rehearsing my responses and that just seems disingenuous and it just turns the podcast into like I'm play acting instead of just having a real conversation. So here's the way I want you to picture it tonight, right? I, you you drove by my house and you're like, wait, he's not at the church. It's It's after seven. How come he's not there? You stop, you come, you knock on the door. Hey, what's going on? Well, we're not we're not having in-person services tonight. So what are you going to do? I'm going to listen to a podcast episode on eschatology. Well, can I join you? We'll grab a notebook, sit down, and let's listen together. So we're going to listen together and talk about it. I never know what's going to happen. That's the fun part. <laughs> That's sometimes the bad part, but let's do it. Are you ready? Here we go. That's 13 minutes of, of review and setup, hopefully. And, and it gives everyone a, t- a chance to tune in. So here we go. Um, I was getting ready to take a drink of water. I'll just wait until we start listening to take a drink of water. That's why you don't have to listen to me live on the air. Take a drink of water, all right? Does that make sense? All right, here we go. Theo, Theocast. Um, again, I wish I had the date. I could read their description, but I'm not. The fact they have left, isn't it funny? I, I do find it interesting that anytime anyone gets ready to talk about eschatology or Bible prophecy, people still want to throw in the words left behind because that just seems to be like, in so many people's mind, eschatology, the second coming, the end times, is always associated with the phrase left behind. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I am. Or is that just, uh, yeah. That just, it's just to me, that's funny. Hey, we're going to do it with eschatology. Throw in the words left behind. Throw in the words left behind. And then, and then there we go. So I, I guess it still is a way to get people's attention. I don't know. But here we go. Um, Okay, according to someone looking, according to Spotify, they dated as March the 23rd, I'm assuming 2022. So not too long ago. Um, and uh, there we go. So we're going back into the archives of Theocast and their discussion on eschatology. We're going to listen and we're going to discuss it ourselves. Here we go. Hi, this is John, and I'm with Justin, and we're still in Maryville finishing up a couple more episodes, and we thought we would do one on the boogeyman eschatology. John's idea. Yeah, my idea. Uh, <laughs> we definitely had a good time talking about it. We want to be graceful, but we do t- talk about the different millennial views and how we should approach them as Christians when we disagree and thinking through doctrine, millennial views, and a literal interpretation of Scripture. Hope you enjoy. Word. All right, now I got to jump in. I'm going to ask you a question. And this is, I'm setting you up. Okay, I'm setting you up. But I think this is important. There's a tendency within the world of Christianity that whenever a discussion about eschatology emerges, there's almost an immediate desire to say, hey, 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 now, 
Remember, eschatology should not determine fellowship. Eschatology does not determine salvation. It, it, it's just, it's, it's one of, it's, it's a non-essential. So if someone disagrees on eschatology, it's not that big a deal. You can have your eschatology. I can have my eschatology. And we, we, should, we should all, in a, in a way, try to get along. Now, I understand why people would say that. But I here, I have somewhat of a problem, and I'm going to push back. Now, you may agree with that, and I understand, but let me try to explain my perspective. I don't think eschatology is really an argument about the end times. I don't believe, I know eschatology is the study of end times, but I don't think discussions and debate about eschatology is really about end times. Disagreement about eschatology is not about rapture, no rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. It's not about pre-millennial, amillennial. It, it's those, that is all the distraction, right? When people start debating eschatology, they get caught up in all of that. Are you pre, pre-trib, mid-trib, uh, amillennial, pre-millennial? And, 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 you know, you get caught up in all of that. And I, and I just want to, if I had a whistle, I would just like, I just want to blow a whistle, an air horn or scream and tell everyone, stop. That's not what we're fighting about. I believe eschatology and, and everyone who attends Victory Baptist Church knows exactly what I'm getting ready to say It's not a debate about those things. It's a debate about hermeneutics. It's a debate about how we actually interpret Scripture. The debate about Matthew 24 and the Olivet Discourse is not so much, did this happen before 70 AD or after 70 AD? Yes, we have to discuss those things, but it really comes down, how am I going to handle and interpret Scripture of the Olivet Discourse. How much of it do I take as these things literally happen? When do I start making them figurative? When do I start making them allegorical? When do I look at that? Wait, wait, Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple. When do I just throw that out and say, nope, he's talking about the second coming? Well, wait a minute. Jesus was actually standing there. I think he knows what he was talking about. It comes down to hermeneutics. We just did a, a live episode, what, yesterday, I think, uh, listening to a sermon on our radio broadcast on the Antichrist. And they were looking at a passage in Second Thessalonians. And what frustrated me there is the passage says, hey, guys, I'm going to give you basically these signs so that you know the day has not happened yet. They, for some reason, just ignored what the passage was actually trying to do and said, hey, Antichrist is a spirit, and what he's telling them is don't have this spirit. And that's not what Paul said he was doing in that passage. So it's a it's a hermeneutical issue. Now, once it becomes a hermeneutical issue, I'm sorry. I don't think it's then you can just all hold hands, sing kumbaya, and have a Coke and a smile. Then it becomes that becomes an issue because hermeneutical issues determine then how you interpret everything in the Bible. So I think eschatology is not a debate about end times. It's a debate over hermeneutical methodology, Bible study methodology, how you, are you rightly dividing the word of truth or not? Now, not everyone's going to like that because we like to say, well, you know, hey, we, 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 you know, when it comes to eschatology, we just got to we just got to all kind of agree to disagree. And I'm like, well, we're agreeing to disagree on hermeneutics. There can't be any agreeing to disagree on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the very foundation of how we open, read our Bibles and interpret it. We can't 
agree to disagree on that. We need to have an agreed upon hermeneutic because if we don't have an agreed upon hermeneutic, we're not going to, uh, oh, you're right. We're not going to agree on anything. Welcome to Christianity for 2,000 years. All right, let, let's, let's get back. See, we, we're, we're not making it very far, but here we go. If you'd like to help support Theocast, you can do that by leaving us a review on iTunes and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Plus, we have a Facebook group if you'd like to join the conversation there. Thanks for listening. That's just always important for any podcast. Subscribe on a podcast app. If that podcast app allows you to give a thumbs up or to leave a review, like on the Apple podcast, do so because that creates uh, the, the, the more reviews, the more uh, thumbs up, the more five stars. That's how the algorithms pick it up. And then that's how other people discover it. Because I don't know if you've ever looked at a podcast app. There are so many podcasts that it's amazing that you can find any of them. The way you typically find them is the one the podcast app is pushing at you. Because other than that, you're just randomly maybe stumble upon it. So just, you know, that's always just always important to know. All right, here we go. All right, letting their music play. Here we go. Welcome to Theocast, encouraging weary pilgrims to rest in Christ. Show enough. Conversations about the Christian life from a Reformed and pastoral perspective. Your hosts today are Pastor Justin Perdue from Asheville, North Carolina, and I'm John Moffitt from Grace Reformed Church in Spring Hill, Tennessee. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, for those of you watching on the YouTubes or video, however you're watching this, we are actually together in Maryville. Tennessee, which uh, is a suburb of Knoxville, Tennessee. We have been recording all day for various reasons, and some of that will come out later, if not has already come out. But once in a while, Justin and I get together in Knoxville to plan about the future, to record together, spend time together. And so it is at the end of our day. It is. It is at the end of our day. We're pretty weary. This is our fourth intro. Uh, Thankfully, we only got a few seconds in. I could not get my words out clear enough because... We've been talking all day. True. So, and I am the pastor of Covenant Baptist Church what did in I Asheville, say? North Carolina. You just said I was from Asheville. Apparently, I'm the pastor of a city. You are the but pastor of uh, you know, city church. We talk a lot about this when we try to make membership plain about how I'm not a pastor of like everybody in South Asheville, but I'm a pastor <laughs> for people who are members of CBC. Anyway. There you go. So, Justin, today uh, we wanted to stop and we do this often. What are we going to talk about? What, what can we talk about on the podcast that will be helpful, clarifying? So today's um today's a fun right, one. So it is the end of a long day. It is. Right? We've had plenty of coffee, plenty of laughs. We've gotten a lot done. So we're thankful for all of that. And so yeah, we were like, what do we want to do here? We need to get a, another episode recorded before we depart from one another. What do we want to talk about? And basically where we landed is that John wants to talk about eschatology. <laughs> and so that's what we're going to do. That, that might not be the clearest way of putting this, but <laughs> well, no, I, so specifically there's an area of eschatology yeah, we're going to talk about. See, this is what I'm doing. You gave yeah. it to me to set the topic up, and now I'm pivoting it back to you. There you go. So that you can tell the dear people who listen to this show why you want to talk about eschatology, and then that's going to get us rolling. Yeah. We hope. When would new people find Reformed theology, uh, as they start discovering it, the probably most popular subject that we get, or the most questions that we get are centered around, what are your 
views on eschatology. All right, brief interjection. We usually get the vast majority of our correspondence is about assurance and safety in Christ. But when you're talking about people are curious about doctrinal positions that we have. No, what I mean is they start making the transition into a Reformed perspective. Like they're new to Reformed theology. Most likely anybody who's not Reformed comes from a dispensational background normally. True. Normally, not always, because normally. Because the U.S., the conservative church in the U.S. is more or less dispensational by default. That's right. Okay, now I got to throw in something here because this is where I get my, see, this is where I get myself in trouble. But this is a problem somewhat I have with Christianity. I really do. If you're reformed, right, that means you embrace, there's a whole list of doctrines that you have to embrace, or many within the reform world will say, you're not truly reform. Some in the reform world will say, well, you can't be Baptist and be reformed because you reject covenant baptism or infant baptism and uh, in, in placing the mark of the covenant on a new infant and allowing them to become a member of the visible church. Therefore, you're not reformed enough, so you can't be reformed. So sometimes you'll be You'll be a quote unquote a reform, say reformed Baptist. Many many people in the reform world say that's impossible to be a reformed Baptist because of our view on baptism. And they'll say, well, you're not reformed enough. Or they'll they'll go to a reformed Baptist church, but they'll be upset because you still you speak against infant baptism. And so then they go find a Presbyterian church, which was probably where they should have went from from the beginning. Okay, but you get the idea. So you've got to if you're going to be reformed, you gotta you gotta just. You got to buy into the whole, the whole. In other words, it's a package deal. If you're going to be reformed, you got to believe in infant baptism in the minds of many people. And oh, lo and behold, you can't be dispensational in your eschatology because that's a deal breaker. You cannot be reformed and hold to any form of dispensationalism. So, so here's what. So, what drives me crazy is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why does it have to be a package deal? Right? Like, I just don't like that. If I'm on this team, I have to agree with all this checklist. Like, here's the checklist. It's almost like being in a gang. Okay. You got to flash your colors. What's your colors? All right. Here's my, oh, I got the reform colors on. Okay. So that means you believe this, 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 this. Oh, wait, 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 wait. I'm calling into question you wearing our colors because you're not reformed enough. Right. So then if you, but if you go to the quote unquote, the non-reform side and you're like, wait a minute, you believe that in the doctrine of election and total depravity and God's sovereignty and God's providence. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not, you're not enough on our side. You're, you're one of those reform people. So for some of us, like me, I don't care about your titles. I don't care about your gangs. I care about figuring out the truth. Right. And so I just I just hate that. Like, if you're on this team, then you just have to go with the whole framework. And I I just don't think any one systems framework is correct. I'm sorry. I just don't think it's that simple that uh, all of our framework is right and all of their framework is wrong. I I just I, I just I just I just disagree with that. So I. You know, if you don't want to say that I'm reformed, fine. I don't I don't really care what you call me. What I want to be called is a follower of Christ and what I want to be called is uh someone who cares about the the Bible and wants to study it regardless of whose team I upset. But I, I, it's true that if you're reformed, that most likely almost dogmatically, you're going to have to hold to an eschatology that is not dispensational. Dispensationalism is not consistent with Reformed theology. 
with most people who are reformed. And I just think that that's like, well, okay, well, I can't be a part of your club because I reject your amillennialism. So I just, I hate the way that works, but I would just challenge you. Don't, I, I, I don't care what people say. Don't get caught up in that. You just pursue truth. And you know what? If you're, if you can't find a team, then find that team of people who care about pursuing truth. That, that's, that's what I have to say. And again, I don't think it's an issue. I don't think the issue should be dispensationalism versus amillennialism. I think the issue should be how do you, what's your hermeneutic? That to me is the issue. All right, let's continue. Maybe talk about why that is. Yeah. So when people start making this transition, the first question they ask is what is your view on eschatology? Because in the reformed world, there are varying views throughout history. In the dispensational world, it seems to be pretty dominant in one perspective, which is the pre-trib, pre-rapture view of the dispensational ilk. So I thought it would be. I say, I don't like that either. Maybe I hold to the the basic concepts of dispensationalism, that being that Israel is separate from the church. The church did not replace Israel. God made promises to national Israel that will be fulfilled in the future. Well, why is it that if I hold to some level of dispensationalism, I have to immediately be pre-trib? I have to, why, why do I have to immediately, I hate when it's, see, that's the thing. It's like, no, this is what you, if you take this title, this is what you have to be. What if I'm just like, you know what? If I read my Bible, the Old Testament gives promises to Israel. No question about it. Clearly, those promises were not fulfilled. I don't think that they were taken from Israel, given to the church, and then fulfilled in an allegorical way, because in the Old Testament where those prophecies are found, there are also prophecies about the first coming of Christ that we understand as being fulfilled literally. So why wouldn't the promises made to Israel, relatively close to the same time as these promises about the first coming of Christ, why wouldn't they also be fulfilled literally for the very people they were given to? See, to me, that's a hermeneutical issue. So I don't like if you're if you're dispensational, you have to be pre-trib and have to believe in a pre a pre-trib rapture, and you have to whoa, slow down. I, I I think the basic elements are now. Yes, when you say, well, when is when is Christ going to when, when is these promises going to be fulfilled to Israel? Yes, trying to figure out the when may require obviously in a literal thousand year reign of Christ. You may say that's where it's fulfilled. You may say the church is going to be removed that God deals with Israel for a period of time. You, you, I understand that that's the attempt to try to figure out the where, the where, when, and how. But in some cases, if I don't feel Scripture gives me the where, when, how, I am not required. I don't care what you say to give you an answer. What I'm required to do is is go with what Scripture say. Scriptures clearly give promises to Israel. Clearly they weren't fulfilled. And clearly I see no biblical grounds for taking them from Israel and giving them to us. You say, well, when when are they going to be fulfilled? How are they going to be fulfilled? If the Bible doesn't give me a clear indication, I'm not required to give said answer. And I don't care if that kicks me out of your club or that, that, that gives you some grounds for t- telling me that I'm a part of a different club. Now, I got no problem with giving these theological distinctions and titles of these systems of theology. Yes, systems of theology are like, okay, here's this system, here's this system. But those systems are there in a way to summarize a perspective. They should not become my identity, right? So just, just, yeah, I I get a little irritated by that, but here we go. Fun. Uh, And I, 
I think, helpful sure. to talk about eschatology from a historical standpoint and specifically how there's been a confusion where one view of eschatology has been put it, pitted against the other views. And it has created, I think, some very strong confusion and animosity mm. in this particular area and sure. maybe offer some helpful guidelines as one is journeying through this and they mm. are developing their theology, mm-hmm. how the church has viewed eschatology, mm. how the Bible, I think, presents eschatology and how we should probably uh, pay attention to history and maybe uh, utilize some observation of how it's been done wrong, which is really what this podcast is. And we're going to be talking about how eschatology has not been used in a healthy manner. So I'm going to set it up sure. and then I'll let Justin kind of uh, You're doing great, join, join in on this. Keep going. Uh, my history and background is different from Justin's. Um, I grew up in a very dispensational background that had a lot of heavy views on eschatology, specifically a pre-trib, pre-rapture view mm-hmm. of eschatology, yeah. where we are premillennial in this in this nature. Explain what you mean by premillennial. Right. So this is where things can get complicated, especially if you don't come from a dispensational background or if you're even new to Christianity, mm-hmm. this is probably all new. You may have heard them, some things about that. I mean, when you've got uh, famous Hollywood stars making movies, about the end times, it kind of draws the attention of some people. You know, thank you for Mr. Cage for doing that yes, for us, yes. <laughs> which I have personally never seen Nicholas Cage's I, view or a movie, but I heard it was uh, not one of his best movies. Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, on the subject, I'm not surprised. But so pre-millennial, what there is, is there a belief that there is a time period when Christ comes back? So there's two returns of Christ. The first time Christ comes back, he comes back and he sets up this millennial age where for a thousand years, so millennium meaning a thousand, right? So for a thousand years, we are going to see the reestablishment of the nation of Israel. We're going to see the reestablishment of the temple and the sacrificial system. And they use different passages, things like Daniel, Ezekiel, and Revelation to kind of come to these conclusions. Now, to be fair, yes, they may use some of those passages to come to some of those conclusions. But remember, I think the main issue is promises were made to Israel that haven't been fulfilled See our our series on the book of Romans chapter 9. We went through countless uh, uh, passages of scripture where we can clearly show those promises are made to Israel. In many cases, identifying both the house of Israel and the house of Judah, even identifying the divided kingdom, saying they're going to be brought together. There's going to be revival. There's going to be restoration. And we don't, we've not seen that fulfilled in history. So either I have to say that's not literal, that's the church. And then we get the, all of that. It says we're going to get in a spiritual way. The reason many would hold to a millennial kingdom may not be because of a specific passage in Daniel or Ezekiel. In many cases, it's because we've got to figure out where these promises are going to be fulfilled. A millennial kingdom makes some form of sense in trying to fulfill them. But for me, if I don't have a scripture that specifically gives me how it's going to be fulfilled I don't have to worry about that. I just have to say the promises have to be fulfilled because God's character is at stake. God's character, he makes promises. He's going to have to keep his promises. And that's, and, and, and you would have to ask, why does Paul dedicate basically Romans 9, 10, and 11 to Israel? If Israel's simply been replaced by the church, we could have these discussions. So I, I it just, I, I think it's not just, well, they just use a couple, you know, some passages from Daniel and Ezekiel. No, it's all, it's based off an entire issue 
of God made promises to Israel that have to be fulfilled. That's the issue, okay? That, that's the issue here. And then it comes down to your hermeneutic. How do you interpret these promises? Literal, spirit, or allegorical. If they're allegorical, what about the promises about the first coming of Jesus that just happened to happen literally? Like, uh, wait, that's literal and the next promise is allegorical? That, see, that's where the problems begin. And sorry, go ahead. And then prior to that millennial kingdom of Christ. Right. I'm sorry. Thanks. Yeah. So, so yeah, so that's the millennium. Right. So when I say pre-millennium or pre-trib, pre-rapture, that's kind of like the focal point of what's going to happen. Before that happens, there's a seven-year tribulation. Right. Right. And so when someone says I'm pre-millennial, pre-rapture or pre-trib, pre-trib yeah. what they're saying is Christ comes back. He takes the saints with them. Mm-hmm. When he does that, then there's going to be kind of like this trial period yeah, of seven, so seven years. years of great tribulation. Right. Right. And um, we're not going to, this is not a full like explanation of eschatology. Uh, but for those of you that understand this particular view, it is, it's a terrifying thing to realize that you may be a, a part of that seven-year tribulation, mm. that seven-year trial that happens before the millennial age. And then mm-hmm. again, after the millennial age, after the thousand years, we go into the new heavens and the new earth. So right. I will say all eschatology, no matter what view you hold, all mill, post-mill or pre-mill, we mm. all agree that one day God is going to restore the earth yeah. and King Jesus is going to be the ruler and we're going to mm-hmm. all be in new bodies celebrating in this new creation. Yes, Everyone agrees on that. So, uh, now let's just make it, let's make it clear. All forms of eschatology are terrifying. Okay. Like don't just, Hey, it, you know, the pre-trib, pre-rapture one. Well, it, it's horrifying because you could be, I guess, I guess what he's implying left behind and have to endure seven years of horrible tribulation. That's terrifying. No, what's terrifying is that when Jesus returns, he's going to open up the books and he's going to judge people in those books. And if their name's not found within the book, they're cast into the lake of fire. Will they be tormented day and night? That's terrifying, okay? The terrifying part is eternal punishment from God. I I think... I mean, I, I, it almost felt like that that was trying to make the dispensational view like, well, that's horrible that people could suffer for seven years. Unless you don't believe people are going to suffer for an eternity separated from God, I would assume that's the most terrifying thing of all eschatology, right? Hell, what, lake of fire, eternal separation from God. Wouldn't that be the most horrifying thing of every system of eschatology? Unless you say there is no hell, there is no lake of fire, and there's no eternal damnation. I, I, I just seem, it's horrifying. No, horrifying is all eschatology points to a final judgment, right? Okay. Unless you believe in universalism. Okay, that's a whole different discussion. All right, here we go. What I love to talk when someone is that doesn't matter where their history is, where their heart lies. Mm-hmm. I always stop and say, I need to make sure that you understand that we all agree that one day, no matter when we get there, if it's right after the return of Christ's first return or after all of this other stuff that's going on, we're all going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. Mm-hmm. Every theological position, which I would say the dominant views are going to be all mill, post mill, and pre mill. Uh, you can put in there a, uh, well, I'm not going to get in there. <laughs> we're, we're not going to go there. Those are probably the denominant, uh, dominant views. No, I think that's good. That That actually... We, we, it's always good to start where we all can agree. 
Christ will come back. There will be a new heaven and new earth, and we will live with him. All right, and, 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 and with new bodies, glorified bodies. Okay, that, that's something that we can all agree on. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's wonderful. That's great. Just do know, though, there's some, and, and you have to at least include this, there are many, especially I think even becoming more popular, who deny the existence of an eternal hell or eternal lake of fire where there's eternal suffering. There are some who believe that, no, you're just either destroyed, you cease to exist, they, they come up with other. So let's just be honest that, that uh, not, there, there is massive agreement on that fact that we're going to be with Jesus. There's, but in, in connection with that, there is some disagreement about the, the belief of eternal punishment. But I do think it's cool to find out what we do agree upon. But let me make it very clear. The disagreement about everything else, it's not a disagreement about those specific things, even though there is disagreement about them. The ultimate disagreement is how do we interpret the relevant passages of Scripture? Literally, allegorically, what do we do? And are we consistent in the way, in our hermeneutic for eschatology, in other words, do we use the same hermeneutic to interpret passages dealing with eschatology as we do in dealing with passages that uh, prophesy the first coming of Christ or judgment upon Tyre and Sidon and, you know, other, other things that we know came about 70 AD that came about in a literal way. In other words, if, if we, if we use one method of hermeneutics for things not related to quote-unquote eschatology, and then we use a different hermeneutic for things related to eschatology, then the issue is the, is the disconnect in our hermeneutics or the inconsistent in our hermeneutics, not our, our view on eschatology. I think it's a hermeneutical issue, not, a, not an issue about eschatology. They all agree that there's a new heavens and a new earth, and we're going to be celebrating with Christ. I think it's important to understand that those are all very much orthodox in view. Yes. Okay. Now, what I was taught, and many of you have probably uh, experienced this as a premillennialist, is that if you hold to any other view, you're really denying the Bible and you're denying the gospel. That a all mill and explain, post mill. Yes. Explain how you would be denying the gospel. Right. Well, and really denying, I mean, I've literally been taught, like, I don't understand how someone can hold to an all millennial view and still be a Christian. Mm. It, because... Um, what has been taught is that you're basically are going to end up denying the book of revelation. You're going to be denying the literal hell. You, yeah. you start. And so in my mind, I thought, well, if you deny pre-trib, pre-mill, you're probably denying other areas of the Bible. Therefore, I'm going to start questioning your salvation. Okay. Let me make it very clear. I, I, I went to one school that was all mill. Catholic school that, ha that has their, their system of, of eschatology, which would be more awe-mill, all right? So I, I've gone to other schools that have taught eschatology. I've gone to schools that were dispensational. So I've, I've been taught both – I've been taught all kinds of different systems of eschatology. I've heard from awe-mill perspectives that, no, you are denying the gospel because you're going to believe the temple's there. There's going to be a reinstation of the sacrificial system, which denies the sacrifice of Christ. I don't know how you can be a Christian and hold to that. I've heard it – 
every side. So this is not that the pre-mill dispensational side calls into question the salvation of that poor amillennial. I've heard amillennial call into question the salvation of dispensational. I've heard people, look, people call, that's, it's a pastime. It's a hobby within Christianity, calling other people's Christianity into question and calling their salvation into question. It's been going on for 2,000 years of church history. It's not, no one system has the corner on the market of calling people's salvation into question, all right? that, that Let's just make sure that is just clear. People have been doing it on all sides. So the question is, what does one, now, now this really comes down to this question, what does one, what does a person have to believe in order to be saved? Now, there's going to be, there's not going to be agreement on that. Right? Grab the Athanasian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and look at what they say you must believe in order to be saved, right? So, in other words, do you have to understand the hypostatic union in order to be saved? True humanity and true deity. What some people say is, well, you don't have to understand it to be, this is, it's really weird how people will do this. You don't have to be saved initially. You don't have to know this or believe this to be saved initially, but if you reject it after your salvation, well, then you were never saved. Like, wait, what? How does that work? You you don't have to believe in the Trinity to be saved, but if you reject the Trinity, then you were never saved. What? So, so how does that work? How do, so what is required? So it comes down to what does someone have to believe in order to be saved? That's a whole separate podcast in and of itself. But so, but I just want you to know that people call people's salvation into question for anything and everything, right? And in many cases, it completely denies that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, and that we're saved by believing in Christ and his finished work. And so we always want to keep adding things that you have to believe or you have to do in order to be saved. So, um, but I just want to make sure it's, it's, it's to be fair, people, uh, Arminians call Calvinist, the Arminians question the salvation of Calvinists. Calvinists calls into question the salvation of Arminians. Pelagians call into question of those who reject Pelagianism or Augustinians. Uh, you could go on and on and on and on. Amillennial qu- calls into question dispensational, dispens- calls into questions the amillennial. People call into question the salvation of preterists. It, it's just what Christians do. I, I just, I just feel like that. Well, we, you know, I don't know if I, Man, it's about bed. It's about bedtime, and I don't think I've called anyone's uh, salvation into question today. I think I've wasted my day. I better wake up and hop on social media real quick and call someone's salvation into question. I think it. It's just what Christians like to do, and uh, so nobody has the corner on the market in doing that. Uh, and it is, yeah. it's, but that is that you meet a lot of people who are in this world and it's sure. true. They're like, I don't understand how you could hold all millennial or post millennial views and call yourself an Orthodox Christian because somehow orthodoxy became associated with pre millennial view of the, of the entire. And in particular, not a historical pre mill view, but a pre trib. Right. Right. Yeah. There, and we're not going to get into that. There is a distinct difference between the dispensational view yeah. of premillennialism and the historic view. Yeah. And so some of this comes down, I think the issue that you're highlighting comes down to what we would call hermeneutics, which mm-hmm. is, you know, how we interpret the scripture. And did you hear that? Did you hear that? This comes down to hermeneutics. <laughs>
I'm so glad they mentioned that. That's awesome because that's what I think the whole issue is about. This is hermeneutics, man. This is all about hermeneutics. And if you figure that out, then you see, you understand the importance of the discussion of eschatology. Really, it's like, I don't even think we should just figure out what is your hermeneutic? It shouldn't even be what is your view in eschatology. It should be what is your view on hermeneutics? If we can come to it, and here's the thing, don't debate someone about eschatology. You're wasting your time. You're just wasting your time. Like, well, as soon as I get any comments or emails about it, I just pretty much just ignore it because I'm going to, I'm like, I'm not going to debate you about eschatology because what we're going to have to do is go figure out what is your hermeneutical perspective? What is your method of hermeneutics and interpreting passages related to eschatology? What are you doing with them? Well, if you're, if you're approaching them one way and I'm approaching them a different way, We're never going to come into an agreement about eschatology because we disagree at the fundamental level of the hermeneutics we're using in order to try to come to a conclusion. So that's why in our Bible study exercises, we work through them in such a slow way. And I'm like, well, what about this? And what about this? Because we got to figure out what, how are we going to interpret this? How are we going to interpret the Olivet Discourse? So I constantly argue, well, could this work? Could this work? What is our hermeneutic? What is our hermeneutic? And are we being consistent with our hermeneutics? That, that's what this is all about. The charge on the part of dispensationalists towards folks who are not, especially when it comes to this matter of eschatology, is that other individuals, uh, people who would be mill uh, or who would be post-mill or whatever, are not taking the Bible literally. That's right. They're not taking the Bible as seriously as we should. That's right. And what we are prone to do is to spiritualize everything, turn everything into metaphor. And so we have gutted the scriptures in their authority. That's right. Now, that is true. Those on the dispensational side will make that charge and will claim that. Here's what I would tell you to do. Uh, Anytime a millennialist hear that, they say, absolutely not. We don't do that. We don't do that. I just have to challenge you. Matthew Henry commentary is available free online. Grab a Matthew Henry commentary and look at what he does to Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Time and time again, where it mentions Israel, that's not Israel, that's that's the church. That's not a millennial kingdom. That happens in the church. That happens in the church. It happens spiritually. Happens spiritually. Happens spiritually. Happens spiritually. That's why I've constantly challenged everyone, don't take my word for it, just do that. And guess what? When you get to some of those key verses that seem to be making promises to Israel, and all of a sudden, Israel's not Israel. Israel becomes the church. Land isn't land. Land is spiritual influence that the church will possess, and that the millennial kingdom is somehow now, and that Satan is bound now. Well, when you start into some of the things they say, you, you, they, they would have, like, to me, it's disingenuous, and I don't know how far they're going to take this, But it's disingenuous to not acknowledge to some level, because I think if you're going to be amillennial, you have to acknowledge to some extent that, hey, yeah, we don't, we don't take that literal. We think that that's allegorical. We think that that's going to be fulfilled spiritually. You have to, you have to acknowledge that. They don't believe it's a literal thousand years. They don't believe it's a literal reign of Christ reigning from Jerusalem for a thousand years. They don't believe that's literal. They believe that's spiritual. They believe that's happening now within the church. Like you, you can just go on it. There's so many issues like that. So yes, 
I do believe that dispensationalists lay that charge at the feet of amillennialists, but amillennialists have to acknowledge this. Now, here's the thing. Maybe the amillennial hermeneutic is the right one, and the dispensational hermeneutic is the wrong one. So the so don't be, to me, I don't like to be, I don't want an amillennial to say, well, no, 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 we don't really spiritualize. No, 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 you're misrepresenting us. I would rather them own it and say, the reason we spiritualize this passage is because the literal way is wrong. Okay, now we can have an actual discussion about hermeneutical methods. But if you if you try to deny, because so many times amillennialists is like, no, we don't spiritualize. No, we do take it literal. We 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 only don't take it literal when the passage demands that it's allegorical. I'm like, why is it? What what makes this passage to be? What demands that this passage be understood allegorical? Well, because it can't happen literally. Well, that's not a good answer. Let, let's see if they if they dive into this conflict a little bit here more. All right, let's see. That's some of the argument. Right. Um, the the amillennial perspective or amillenarian perspective is one that would teach that the millennium is not a literal thousand years, but that that's a metaphorical way that the scriptures communicate the last times. <laughs> hey, the charge made against us is we don't take things literally. Well, we would say that the or the amillennial position would say that the, the, the millennial reign of Christ is not literal; it's metaphor. It, it, see, so so immediately they so at least they're acknowledging it. So what they should say is, well, there's some truth to this charge because, for example, the thousand years reign. We don't believe that's a literal reign. We think it's metaphorical. Okay, well, congratulations, you just proved when dispensationalists make that charge against you. There's one example we could offer thousands. Just read Matthew Henry's commentary because every everything in, in, in Isaiah and Ezekiel, it's it's the church, the church, the church. You're like, whoa, I didn't know the church was mentioned that many times in those Old Testament books because, well, Israel stops being the church. But okay, I just think it's funny. And this is the charge they level at us. Oh, but there is some truth to it, okay? Um, and so we would understand... I mean, I, I think it's fine for us to say that that's where we find ourselves. And right. Along with the majority of Reformed believers, we, mm-hmm. we would find ourselves in the Amil camp. Uh, brief historical insertion. Um, many times people in this debate will reference older Reformed theologians and will say, well, so-and-so was post-mill in his theology. Understand that the term amillennial or amillenarian is only about 100 years old. But the quote-unquote post-mill theology of old is really an articulation of what we would now call all-mill. Right. Uh, and so the post-millennial theology or post-millenarian theology that you hear articulated by many these days is a relatively newer thing, uh, especially this very optimistic version right. where we're going to kind of usher in the return of Christ that's kind of associated with Reconstructionist views and the like. Right. Um, we may be getting mired in the weeds here. Right, a little bit. But, and I'm, I'm not a huge yeah. fan of the name all-mill because literally all means non no, right. no millennium. So right. instead of taking a position on the millennium, I'm taking a negative position, which I think historically, and I could be wrong here, but I believe historically the uh, five points of amillennialism go something like this. Spiritual Israel, right? In other words, uh, instead of looking for national Israel and promises being made national Israel, national Israel is replaced with spiritual Israel. That's one of the points of amillennialism. Number two, a redemptive historical hermeneutic, a redemptive historical hermeneutic, right? 
okay, versus a grammatical, a grammatical historical hermeneutic, right? It's a redemptive historical hermeneutic versus, I, I think, a grammatical historical hermeneutic. I think that would be the distinction we would make there. Number three, I think they would say something like already, not yet. Um, I think that that's how they would word it, something along those lines. Number four, no geopolitical millennium, or I think you could say no literal millennium. There's no literal millennial kingdom where Christ is reigning from Jerusalem. And then number five, a catastrophic second coming. I think those are the five points of amillennialism. I could be wrong, but I think most amillennialists would agree with that. Those are the basic. I can give them to you again. Spiritual Israel, a redemptive historical hermeneutic versus a grammatical historical hermeneutic. Already not yet, and I'm not super, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I'd have to read about it again to remember exactly how I was taught there. Um, yeah. And then number, a, a no, no geopolitical millennium or no literal, I would say no literal millennium, and then a catastrophic second coming, right? There we have it. That, that would be, that would be, we're going we're gonna to see if we can make it a little further, but just wanted to kind of just lay out some of the basic elements of all millennialism there. It's something we can dig into a little bit more, but well, and we will, we always have like 50,000 things going on, but we'll, we'll add that to our list. I think there's a book called the five, five points of amillennialism. I believe there's a book called the five points of amillennialism. Let me look here. I believe. Yes, you can get it for free. Um, well, you can get it for $5 or if you have Kindle unlimited, it's called the five points of amillennialism. Let me see here. Um, it's only 84 pages. It's called The Five Points of Amillennialism. If you need a, a link to it, just email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and uh, maybe we'll work through the book at some point. Maybe we'll make that a, a, a priority uh, to, do, to do that. So it received uh, – it's, it's been promoted by Dr. Joel, uh, Joe R. Beakey from pres the president of Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which I subscribe to um, Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary podcast. You can also subscribe to it on the Sermons 2.0 app and I think any other podcast app. So I do listen to them on a, a pretty regular and consistent basis. So those are the basic five points of amillennialism. And so there is a book out there. I think those are going to be the five points that are put forth in that book. They may be worded a different way, but I'm pretty sure. All right, here we go. This really not what I want to do. But what I'm saying is I associate as there being no millennial reign. Therefore, I'm an amillennialist, right? Because I believe when Christ comes back, that He is going to usher in the new the new heavens exactly. and the new earth, exactly. And so it, it it's almost like people who are atheists they have to take their a theist, meaning they're anti a god. Yeah. <laughs> so what we're saying is anti millennium, and the only reason that that became a necessity was because of the historical explosion of, of dispensational, of dispensational theology. theology. So you. Uh, the dominant, excuse me, the, I had a handful of peanuts and now it's catching up to me. Um, the, the dominant theological position exploded when you started to have two things, older revivalism. Revivalism was very dispensational in its nature. And then uh, we'll talk about this in a minute. But then you started to have books that were exploding talking about the Left Behind series. 
and I got to stop right here, just so that you know, in amillennialism, the thousand year, quote unquote, reign of Christ is happening right now. Christ's work in the world, his life, death, and resurrection ascension greatly hindered the works of Satan so that the message of the gospel could leave Israel and go out into the ends of the earth just as it is done. The thousand years spoken of Revelation 20 in which Satan is bound is figurative and fulfilled in a spiritual sense. Satan is bound and that he is restricted from implementing all his plans. He can still perform evil, but he cannot deceive the nations until the final battle. Once the thousand years are over, Satan is released to practice his deception for a little while before the return of Christ. So the thousand year reign is happening right now. We're in a sense, I sometimes say we're in a millennial reign now. All millennials say, well, we don't believe in a millennial kingdom, but you believe the thousand years is happening right now. So you believe, you don't believe in a literal millennial reign. You believe in a spiritual reign. So, so I, I think that that's important to, to note that they believe that the, 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 the thousand years is happening right now. And again, it's not a literal thousand years. It's a figurative, it's a metaphorical thousand years. So again, the, the millennial reign is not literal. It's metaphorical. The thousand is not literal. It's metaphorical. You see where the, you see why? dispensationalists and others will call into question the amillennial position for gutting the Bible from being anything taken literal because time and time, Israel is not literal, literal or illiteral Israel was replaced by spiritual Israel. I mean, just on and on and on and on and on and on. It just, it just continues. And at some point you're like, man, you're, you're destroying again, the grammatical historical hermeneutic. Well, because they've replaced it with a redemptive historical hermeneutic. All right. So, all right, let, let's, let's see if we can make it a little further here. And the Left Behind series became one of the top, I mean, to this day, it's one of the top selling books uh, in history in the United States and even worldwide. But what I, the, the, the era that I grew up in, there was even Left Behind movies. And I remember watching them as a youth group. And as you watch them, it was about this seven-year tribulation and all the different bowls and all the things that happened. But the, the, the sense was you did not want to get left to have to go through the seven-year tribulation. It was like the worst experience you could possibly have. So they would use these books and this theology as an evangelistic tool to convince people you don't want to be left behind when Christ comes back. When he comes back and he takes us all to, to bounce out of here, you you don't want to be here to go through that. So I, in my mind, I was like, how could you ever believe in a post-mill position? Like, why would you want to go through as if what I believed about the millennium would make, or sorry, about the tribulation would make it true. Mm. Uh, but I was convinced uh, theologically that I needed to guarantee my salvation so that I didn't have to go through this horrendous experience. Now, come on. Okay. Th this is a little disingenuous. Yes. I agree that those who hold to the seven-year tribulation, uh, that maybe within the dispensational camp, yes, they used it as an evangelistic tool. But let's be honest, okay? Using fear as an evangelistic tool, whether it's the seven-year tribulation or it's, I don't know, you don't want to spend an eternity in hell— Fear used as an evangelistic tool has been happening in 2,000 years of church history from all different camps of eschatology. So it's really like, you know, well, you know, they, they, they try to scare people into getting to, you know, becoming a Christian. And you don't think the fear of an eternal judgment separated from God burning forever is not using fear? <laughs> it's not like, hey, they used a seven-year tribulation as a way to evangelize. okay. And you use hell as a, 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 I mean, like, or do we not warn people of hell? Like, I mean, so I, 
I don't know how that 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 somehow makes it like well, we're going to call this into question because it you know you're scaring people. Yeah, I, I don't see that. We, people, I mean, hell, it's the same thing, right? It's the same concept. You want to become saved to avoid this horrible situation. Well, something far worse than seven-year tribulation, it's called an eternity separated from a holy God where you experience his wrath for eternity. That, I think, is far more frightening than seven years of tribulation, where most likely you'll be killed in it if you believe in a literal seven-year tribulation with the literal things taking place. Of this seven years where no one could die. I mean, you had to endure the entire seven years without dying. And the way in which it was presented. Wait a minute. I thought people are going to be martyred during the tribulation. So you cannot, I do understand that there's some situations where it appears people cannot die, but there aren't some people martyred during the tribulation? Yeah, so I, okay, I, I have to try to understand exactly what he's referring to there. To me, and I think a lot of people still struggle with this, is that if you really hold any other position, you are weakening the the, the the theology of the scripture. You are not taking it serious. And really, you are being light in your preaching about holiness. And you're being light in your preaching about taking serious the return of Christ. Mm-hmm. Because most people, when they think about it, if they've grown up in a pre-mill dispensational background, or even if they don't even understand those words, and they think about the return of Jesus, most people are not excited about Christ coming back. Why? Because it's frightening. It's frightening. So- yeah, I, the conversation about why and how. I'm not, I don't know if that's fair. You're telling me a dispensationalist who believed in a pre-trib rapture is not looking forward to the coming of Christ? Why would it be frightening? You're going to be raptured out and you would be longing for it, hoping for it, looking for it, running outside, waiting for the trumpet to sound? Yeah, like, why would that be... I, I, that's completely not fair. To, now, look, whenever you do this, is the thing with eschatology. Whenever you talk about eschatology, you got to be fair to the different sides. Now, if you, to me, if you believe in a a post trib where you're going to go through it, well, then you wouldn't be looking forward to that, right? But no matter what, I think no matter what view you hold to of eschatology, you're looking for the coming of Christ with some. Some joy, because even if you believe that Christ is going to return after the tribulation, a post-tribulation, you're going to go through it and you're going to suffer. You'd still be looking for his return because, and you'd be excited for it because that's going to be your ultimate deliverance from the suffering, right? So I, 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 I don't know. But to say the pre-trib wouldn't be looking forward to the coming of Christ because it's scary. No, Christ coming back to rapture you would not be scary. It would be wonderful. <laughs> okay, so I... Yeah, okay. I'm a little confused there. All right, let's continue. Now, an amillennial perspective is legitimate biblically is not what we're doing. That's right. So th- that's that's another conversation for another time. Yeah. There are all kinds of like biblical, theological, hermeneutical reasons why we are, you know, proponents of that view. Mm-hmm. And we could talk about passages and we could talk high level theological categories and how scripture works and hangs together and how there's various kinds of revelation in the. Okay. I'm sorry to interrupt that. Someone in chat did say, uh, 
maybe non-believers can't die. I don't know what they were saying. Yeah, I was confused by that too. Like, you can't die because I'm pretty sure that people can be martyred during the tribulation, right? Isn't that one of the concerns? If you don't take the the mark of the beast, you're going to be killed. So I do understand there's some some issues that appear to be that people can't die. I understand where there's some discussions about that, but like that that's just weird. Like just I'm just gonna throw these comments out. Like okay, all right, let's let's continue. Oh, we're not gonna go much longer because we're already over an hour, uh, and I'm trying to get to. Um, I'm going to try just to get a, a good stopping place, and then I'm going to challenge you to go listen to the rest of this podcast on your own. It's called Theocast, or Theocast, T-H-E-O-C-A-S-T, Theocast. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. All right, here we go. The Bible and all of this stuff. Anyway, that's another another conversation for another time. I think what I want to latch on to that you just said is it's very clear that the dispensational framework, this kind of pre-trib rapture view, um, is very fear-based in the way that it works. I was not steeped in it the same way that you were because I... It's very fear-based? I Like, how is that? I don't... It's almost being spoken of like that's an, a negative. It's fear-based. Let me make it very clear. Christianity is fear-based. Believe in Jesus or spend an eternity burning. That's fear-based, okay? Like, I... I know it's like pre-trib, they're fear-based. All millennial, all millennialists, we're not fear-based. Well, do you believe if people die and they don't and they're not saved, they're going to spend an eternity in hell? Wouldn't that be fear-based? The the worst you can accuse the pre-trib for is if you're not saved, you're going to go through seven years of suffering. Okay, versus an eternity of suffering, like I. Like the the seven year suffering thing, that's just completely fear based. I, I that is that is disingenuous at best to almost just downright misrepresentation and mischaracterization. And I and I'm not, I'm not even trying to put a dog in the fight. I don't care which which way you go, but just be fair. Christianity is fear based. Believe in Jesus or burn. That's pretty fear based. Okay. I grew up in a very, you know, you were talking about a millennial, meaning non-millennial view. I grew up in an atheological environment, <laughs> um, but I still went to the judgment house every Halloween. <laughs> and uh, That's good. Someone just made a great point. Since when does fear level have anything to do with whether something is true? Exactly, right? Like, I mean... They've made an argument that it it seemed like the argument is that all millennialists are attacked by those mean dispensationalists because we say we gut the Bible and we don't take it. We we take it allegorical and metaphorically. Then they turn around and acknowledge that, well, that the thousand years is not thousand. It's not a literal reign that they so they, they therefore give some credence to that criticism. And then they try to say that, well, the. The people who are pre-trib, they don't really love the coming of Christ. It's not a good thing because uh, there's too much fear. Wait, what? That does That's not even an accurate representation. And then not only that, what difference if it's fear-based? It, look, it's fear-based to say, hey, you do these activities, you're going to get cancer. Right? That's fear-based. That doesn't make those warnings about doing these things and getting cancer not true. 
right? Hey, if you go stand in front of a train and get hit, you're possibly could lose an arm, a leg, or your whole body could just be completely destroyed. Don't do it. Well, that's a little fear-based. I better go stand in front of a train. Yeah, fear-based doesn't mean something is not true. It may mean that there's something to be fearful of. <laughs> that's really the extent of my experience. That's and right. I think I my church upbringing was strange in that the church that I can that I spent the most time in that I remember the most from my young years was um, duly affiliated. It was a Baptist church that was duly affiliated with the SBC and something known as the cooperative Baptist fellowship, which is very liberal. Mm -hmm. So it was a very like schizophrenic theological upbringing. Mm. Um, So you had some of this moralism that was still inherent. And then you also had this kind of lean towards a liberal theology, Mm. but yet we would still as a youth group go to the judgment house at whatever Baptist church across town, because it was good that we would basically have the hell scared out of us. That's right. Yeah. Um, Quite literally. And so I I think the ways that we might tether revivalism in that project and then dispensational theology in that project and, and even just the way that it went about uh, trying to evangelize and, uh, how you would work people up into a frenzy. I mean, I think all of this is just part and parcel of the American church experience for yeah. many people, right? Absolutely. I mean, to be super clear on revivalism, there were revivals and there was revivalism that was a Calvinistic, non-dispensational kind of thing that happened even in the first great awakening, yep. as it's so-called, which we could talk about at another point in time. But then certainly, you know, the, the second great awakening and beyond and the practices that became associated with that sort of movement were very much informed by a dispensational framework. Man, they're blaming dispensationalism for everything. So dispensationalism is to be blamed for judgment houses. I think judgment houses are absolutely ridiculous and crazy, but that's a whole different story. Uh, uh, And revivalism is being blamed on dispensationalism as well. Everything's being blamed on dispensationalism. Maybe the boogeyman is not eschatology. Maybe the boogeyman is, is dispensationalism. Again, at its core level, dispensationalism. In fact, let me see. I think I think I had it written down. Um, give me one second here. I had the key elements of it written down for Sunday school. See if I can find it in my notes. Uh, see if I can find it in my notes. I may have it here. Let me see here. Um, do I have them down here? Okay, well, the, t- the two main distinctives, I, I think, I thought I had more, but there's two main distinctives to dispensationalism. Number one, consistently, a consistently literal interpretation of scripture, especially biblical prophecy, and a view of the uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church and God's program. The, those are the two main uh, distinctives of dispensationalism. Those are the two primary ones, a consistent literal interpretation of scripture and a view of the unique uniqueness of Israel as separate from the church. If you want to throw in all of these other things, put it this way, there there may be dispensationalists who bought into concepts of revivalism, bought into concepts of modern evangelicalism, bought into all of things, all of those kinds of things. But the judgment house is not there to to scare the tribulation out of you, the judgment houses were designed to scare you about going to hell, 
which is, I, hell is a doctrine that all, all systems of eschatology hold to other than, say, if you're going to believe universalism as a system of eschatology. So I, I don't know how dispensationalists are getting brought into this. It, it just seems, okay, let's continue. Eventually. That's right. And so many of the people that were conservative that thought that conversion was necessary, uh, who became a mainstay of particularly Baptistic life in the United States, they were dispensational. And so this became the predominant view. And it was very fear-based, very conversion-driven, right? Very revivalistic in its nature. Mm-hmm. And that's not the greatest thing uh, no. in, in the world, let's just be frank, to be frightened into faith in Christ because you want to escape punishment. Yeah. Uh, inherently, that's a very legal way to look at things. I, I'm not understanding that he just described Christianity. Isn't Christianity whole thing believe in Jesus so you can escape an eternity separated from God? Like, I don't understand like this, how this is getting blamed on the dispensationalist. It's a fear-based system. It makes it a legal thing that you want to escape punishment. So what do you tell people? Believe in Jesus because Jesus is wonderful. Well, what if I don't believe in Jesus? Well, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. You just, you just won't have a great life. Is that, is that the way you evangelize? Or do you say you are a sinner who have violated the holy standards of God and God's wrath abides on you? Like what? I, I'm not, I don't understand how this is a dispensational thing. It, it became fear. Dispensationalism created a fear-based Christianity. Are you telling me? <laughs> Wait, didn't the Roman Catholics scare people to death about purgatory and say, give us money so that you can set the, the soul suffering and purgatory free? They, they weren't dispensationalist. <laughs> You're telling me there was no fear-based uh, things prior to the rise of dispensationalism? Christian, I am so baffled by this. I am so baffled by this. All right, we're going to try to go three minutes and stop. Um, to be motivated by escape of punishment is not actually um, the way that the scriptures will talk about living the Christian life. Right. We want to be motivated by love and joy and gratitude and the like, not scared. Wait a minute. Now you're, now you're confusing it. Evangelism clearly is fear-based. Where in dispensationalism it says you better live the Christian life based off the fear of going through the tribulation? Isn't dispensationalism saying you're saved by grace alone? You don't go through the tribulation because you're saved. When does it say if you don't live your Christian life good enough, you don't get to go with the rest of us? How? This is so mischaracterization. This is character assassination. Where, where does dispensationalism say, hey, you better live a good Christian life or you're going to go through the tribulation. I've seen people who are all millennial who are very uh, lordship and their view of salvation who says, if you don't do this and this and this, you're probably not saved. That like, <laughs> why wouldn't a dispensationalist be living a life, uh, their Christian life be based off love and joy and peace and, and gratitude for the salvation that they receive because of the imputed righteousness of Christ? What does that have to do with being fear-based of living your Christian life because of the tribulation? If you are pre-trib, you're not going through it. <laughs> like, I don't understand. ...into obedience to Christ. Right, and then that point was, 
what is Christ going to find you doing when he returns? As if that action is going to boot you it's, out. Right. Could could literally damn you. Right. Uh, As if, all right, well, you weren't doing the right thing. So there now you have to go through the tribulation or you're not going right. to be saved at all. But it, it, there was always this. What are you going to be doing? What is what is he going to be find you doing? And, um, <laughs> you know, the old grandma saying, you know, you better have clean underwear on when he gets here. You know, <laughs> just. Now, there may be some dispensationalists. See, that wouldn't be their dispensationalism. That would be their soteriology and believing you can lose your salvation. Or it would be a lordship view that Jesus comes back and you, and he he you didn't do all of these things you were not saying. What does this have to do with dispensationalism? How is this getting? How is they're just blaming dispensationalists for everything? Okay, dispensationalists are responsible for nine eleven. They're responsible for COVID. They're responsible for World War One and Two. They're responsible for the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, Korean North uh, Vietnam. The, I mean, the I mean. French Indian War. I mean, they're, they're guilty for every. I mean, like, I don't. This is just so weird how all of this is being connected to dispensationalism. It it, it it bleeds through it, and a little bit where I want to go. I don't want to just spend the whole time picking on this, but just in a little bit where I want to kind of this to lead to is it um, the view of your view of eschatology ends up becoming a grid by which we put on the text. And then it influences the priority of the text as well. All right, we'll stop there because that's where they break. I completely agree. This is the problem. Most cases, when you go to church, you are given a system of eschatology. And this is what they do. They They step into the pulpit with the system of eschatology. They lay it on the Bible. They teach you the eschatology. And then they proof text it while looking some different scriptures. And you're like, that makes sense. That's my system. We learned it from Bible study. No, you leave the system out. You work through the text like we're doing with Matthew 24. And like, well, what about this? And what does that work? Okay, what does this system say? What does this say? What about this? What about that? And then when we're done, then we decide which system we have. That's the way, but that's not the way it's taught. It's not even taught that way in seminary or Bible college. You come in and like, we're going to study eschatology. Boom. They start giving you the system. They proof text the system, but they proof text the system by laying their system already on top of the text. No, you study the text. Then you see what system and you look at all of the different systems and you see which ones agree with the text. That's why you have to look at all of them and struggle with it. So I do believe that it becomes a grid, but it becomes a grid because the church pastors do that. Just what text are we studying? Forget eschatology. What's the text? Okay, what are the implications from this text? Well, the implications is is that, well, there's going to be a man of sin, a son of perdition. Okay, what are the implications of this? Well, has he come? Who is he? How are we going to know? Like, that's how we, and then we struggle with it. We can look at all the systems. No, but what you do is you listen to podcasts to come in and say, the son of the, the son of perdition, the man of sin is the antichrist. The antichrist will show up sometime, you know, right before, right after the rapture and just start giving you all of these things, throw some scriptures at you. And then you're like, okay, well, that's what the Bible teaches. No, that you're, you're being, you're, you're being manipulated. You're being ripped off. No, we're going to study the text and we're going to figure out what, what are the, what are the implications of this text? How could it possibly be fulfilled? 
what would be required for it to be fulfilled? Has it been fulfilled? What are all the different options presented in church history? Let's work on it. Well, that doesn't work because of this. That works because of this. Okay, so, well, it, it, it's part, that system is partly right. That system is partly right. So what system are we? We're no system. We're systems that say, this is what the Bible says. That, that, how, how about doing that? Well, so we'll stop right there. Hopefully that was beneficial. That was really frustrating because they spent 18 minutes basically accusing dispensationalism of everything. Right? And, uh, when they do, when they did argue that dispensationalists accuses them of gutting the Bible from a literal interpretation, they immediately turned around and gave us non-literal interpretations of things like the thousand years and the millennial reign of Christ, right? So that, that, I don't know how that disproved the dispensationalist perspective. I, I do understand they weren't trying, they're not trying necessarily to prove one perspective in that episode, but clearly they're against dispensationalism. I think that's clearly coming out. All right, because they weren't offering the same criticisms of amillennialism, and there's many. But I want you to go finish the rest of it. It's Theocast, T-H-E-O-C-A-S-T. You can get it wherever you get your podcast. If you cannot find it, email me, newsif at yahoo.com. I want you to go listen to it because I want them to get the listen. I want them to get the stream. Um, and it's uh, 20, if you fast forward it, fast forward it 18 minutes and 50 seconds. That's where they go to break. Then they're going to come back and spend 22 minutes and 52 seconds. Well, you can hear what they do. If you hear something in it that you think we need to discuss, please give me the exact timestamp where that part starts and where that part ends, and then I will just grab that part, and we'll do another episode discussing it, if you think, or you can just tell me what they say, and we can talk about, but I'll still want, I'll still want the timestamp, because it'll make it, because then I can play it, and it will add to the discussion. Hopefully that makes sense. All right. Yeah, an hour and 24 minutes. That's a long time. Um, there you go. I gave you the five points of amillennialism. I gave you the two distinctives of dispensationalism. So hopefully that was beneficial tonight. I gave you a book uh, to look up on the five points of amillennialism. So that was beneficial. And uh, you got to hear our reform perspective on eschatology that blamed dispensationalism for pretty much everything. <laughs> I don't know how valuable that was, but see, we never know what we're going to hear until we listen. So I'm going to say this. That wasn't very good. That was bad. So don't blame me. I didn't suggest it. Someone else. Okay, actually, I'm the one who suggested this one, but I, I should blame someone else for it. All right, we'll stop right there. Everyone have a great night. Uh, email me, newsif at yahoo.com. Right, I'm making sure that there's no comments there. I don't see any. I'm going to check my email inbox. There we go. All right, if you have any questions about the two major distinctives of dispensationalism or the five points of amillennialism, let me know. And we'll, uh, I'll probably get that book for the Kindle and uh, we'll make it a priority to work through some of those points whenever we have time, when we, uh, when we finish everything else that we're doing. Uh, on Sunday, I'll probably tomorrow, we'll look at the curriculum for the Bible study exercise and see what they do with the abomination of desolation. And uh, we'll do that. And then uh, on Sunday night, we'll go back to Matthew 24 and look at after the abomination of desolation, how preterists look at that. We'll work on that and uh, we'll just see how the week progresses. But uh, if you have any questions, let me know. Someone just said good night in chat. Good night. Everyone have a great night. God bless.